Welcome to the CX Impact Podcast. Speed up your customer experience success. The CX Impact Podcast is brought to you by Gemseek, your trusted analytics advisor, helping you predict what your customers will do next. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the CX Impact Podcast. My name is Ivo, and I will be your host for the day. Now, the topic of our conversation today has gathered a wealth of interest in the last 30, maybe even more years. By now, I think that it has become a common understanding that we are not the rational utility maximizing beings depicted by classical economics. Instead, we have emotions which drive and taint a lot of the decisions that we make. However, the knowledge of this doesn't mean that we implement it in our business decisions. As one of my favorite quotes go, if more information was the answer, then we would all be billionaires with perfect apps. My guest today, Howard Lacks, is here to help us put emotions at the core of our customer experience activities and to share how to create unforgettable moments. Now, Howard, when I, when I met Howard a couple of weeks ago, I was truly amazed by his experience. He has spent more than 30 years, I think, by now, understanding consumer psychology and devising solutions for improving customer experience. And it's an absolute pleasure to have him with me today. Welcome, Howard. Thank you, Eva. I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you in your audience. Oh, it's it's entirely my pleasure, pleasure, Howard. And I think that judging by the conversations that we have had so far, I think we can offer so much in terms of kind of putting this uh, uh, this topic into into good business use. But could you start by saying a couple of words about yourself, maybe? How did you sure. how did you end up in this sure. business? <laughs> I've, I have a long background in customer experience research and general market research. Um, for the last 30 years or so, most of the work has been on the customer experience side, first on the client side in the last 20 plus years on the vendor side. And uh, it's, it's, you know, I've always done the classical work that everybody has done, measuring all the things that everyone has measured in an effort to identify what it is that motivates people to be loyal or to be engaged with an experience or to renew or not renew all the usual. Uh, but for the last seven or eight years, I've had a particular focus on the issue of the impact of emotions. Um, you know, emotions obviously aren't new per se. Human beings have always had them. And uh, the, the impact of emotions on human decision-making isn't something new. Um, scientists have for years known that most decisions are emotionally based. And then we rationally come in after the fact and basically justify the emotional decision that we had made moments before. Um, I've increasingly begun to look at the emotional dimensions of the customer and the employee experience um, as as distinct and really um, adding just so much more explanatory power to our understanding of what it is that motivates uh, people when they make decisions and in their behaviors. That's super interesting, Howard. And I know that you've, you've been a director uh, of marketing and customer information at Freddie Mac. And it's just like uh, the, the first time that I learned about it, I was like, this doesn't sound like a job in which you're too interested in the emotions of, of people, if I'm honest. What kind of triggered you in your career in this direction? Or how was it back then? Well, you know, back then, I mean, Freddie Mac, for those of you who don't know, is one of the huge 
players in the secondary mortgage market in the U.S. Um, that means they don't they don't make mortgages to people like you and me. They buy mortgages from Wells and Chase and Bank of America and all the banks that originate the mortgages. Um, I, I was running their customer satisfaction program back then. Everything was called customer satisfaction. We are talking, you know, Stone Age back in the nineties, nineteen nineties. That is not eighteen nineties. Um, and you know, we were measuring all of the things that you would expect to measure. You know, how much they pay for mortgages, how quickly they would make the deal, ease of doing business. You know, many of those things haven't changed. The the two. The two leads at Freddie both were these Harvard-trained economists, Harvard PhDs, and you know I would go to them and say, "Look, here's here's what's driving the decisions of the people that are selling us mortgages," and and they would just dismiss anything that wasn't simply the economic maximizing decision as was referred to in the parlance of the day, best execution, you know, who offered the best price and the quickest payment. And it turns out that, you know, these mortgage lenders had a whole bunch of other things on their mind besides just what the economic model said they should be doing. Um, and it was, it was constantly a battle with them uh, because they would basically say, well, if they're, if our clients aren't smart enough to know what is the right decision, then we really shouldn't worry about what they think. Uh, it, it drove me crazy. I had the same thing when I did the brand, the advertising testing for them. We would test ads and I'd go to the CEO and say, this is the ad that best resonated. And he would say, well, that's not the ad I like, and I would say, but you're not the audience. Not the audience. Um, you know, it, it was it was really chasing my tail. It was it was crazy. I was going to say that I can only imagine, but but I can't even imagine it. Because do you think things have changed uh, since since then? Oh, dr dramatically. Um, you know, the, the 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 market has woken up to something that behavioral scientists have known for years, namely that emotions play such a critical role. You know, people ask me all the time, you know, why is there suddenly a huge interest in the impact of emotions? And I always turn the question around and say, the real question is, what took the business community so long to wake up to what has been obvious? I mean, you know, you could stick your head in the ground like an ostrich but the reality is, uh, you know, emotions have been at the heart of decision making for forever. And, you know, I sort of get it. I mean, you know, companies are in the business of selling things, right? So when someone says we need to improve what we're doing in the marketplace, improve the customer experience, they instinctively retreat to what their business is, selling things. So... They want to make those things better, quicker, faster, smarter, uh, higher tech, easier to work with. And, and all of that is, is absolutely great. But there's such a huge commoditization in the things themselves. And the reality is, you know, th those key driver analyses that we've been doing for years and years and years, you know, indicate that you only get so much lift from improving the things that you sell. 
that there's this huge amount that's not explained by those by those drivers, the intangibles. And, you know, every time I've done this, whether it's in, in, in banking to look at the loyalty to the brand or something as mundane as car repair, it turns out that you add in that emotional attachment and you end up with a lift of something on the magnitude of 50% in terms of the loyalty or attachment to the brand. That's amazing, Howard. And I think it's, it kind of begs the question, I think for the second time in our conversation already, I've had this question in my mind. Um, my background is also in market research. When I started my career, I, I used to do that. That was probably like 10, 10 years ago. But so how do you measure emotions? Because if if people rationalize, this means that probably surveys are not, not kind of the, probably the best option for this. So how do I do it? It's probably what people are asking themselves. That, that is the million-dollar question. You know, I, I, I was in the Freud Museum in Vienna like seven or eight years ago. And at the end, very end of the tour, I look up and there's this poster right above me. And under a picture of Freud, there was a quote literally that says, it's not easy dealing with feelings scientifically. I mean, measuring emotions isn't easy. The most accurate way to measure emotions is with real neuroscience. You could use an EEG or an fMRI for brain activity, <clears throat> excuse me, an ECG for, to measure heart rates or tools to, to measure skin conductance, for example. The problem, of course, with all of these approaches is that they're not scalable. You know, so you could haul 10 or 20 people into a, la into a, a laboratory or a studio in a controlled setting and measure how they react to whatever stimuli, whatever it is, whether it's a brand, an image, an experience. Um, you know, you can do that with 10 or 20 people, but obviously you can't do with that with 10 or 20,000 or 10 or 20 million, obviously. So the neuroscience tools are great if you're working in a very small scale. Many researchers then turn to facial coding, which never lived up to its promise and in the last couple of months has been just eviscerated in the public press, both in the scientific and in the popular press. Uh, the Harvard Business Review, The Economist, The Atlantic Magazine, um, Lisa Feldman Barrett has a great book, uh, How Emotions Are Made, that just totally demolishes the use of, of facial coding. And, and the, the, the British government just came out with a ruling a couple of months ago, basically saying you can't use facial coding uh, because it's so unreliable. You know, after facial coding, a lot of people turn to speech analytics. And, you know, we're accustomed to hearing inflections in our voice and we read into it, but doing it at mass is still pretty crude. And my bet is that speech analytics are going to go the same way as facial coding. They're going to go, it's going to go down as largely pop science. Um, you know, it, it doesn't have any granularity to it. Um, you know, other researchers have simply said, well, I could just ask it. You know, let me just give people a list. You know, we all know what it's like coding from, from a closed-end list. Uh, but leaving aside the fact that, you know, there are 
hundred plus emotions that people express. The list obviously is not is not practical, and it's also completely unreliable. I mean, you know, maybe if you're the Dalai Lama, you're totally in touch with your emotions and you could re- describe it from a list. The reality is, for most of us, you know, asking the rational side of your brain to categorize how the emotional side is feeling, you know, is is just inherently problematic. Yeah, you, you know, need a lot of a lot of emotional intelligence to be able to do that. <laughs> yeah, uh, other folks have simply stuck their head in the sand and said, "Oh, well, I use NPS, and NPS measures emotions." You know, that's just the ultimate cop out and pretend answer. You know, the reality is that the biggest advances have come in terms of understanding how people express emotions in unstructured text. Uh, that is basically a a sophisticated form of text analytics that focuses on the expression of emotions and empathy in in the words that people use. And you know now we could do a pretty good job at determining the underlying emotions that people are expressing in their open-ended responses to survey questions, assuming that they're neutrally worded. And from other texts, you know, uh, emails, chat, social media, transcriptions of call center notes or, or other things. So we can do a pretty good job if you have good open-ended unstructured text. Okay, that, that sounds really interesting. I have to ask you because I, I, I love Lisa Feldman Barrett's books and I've also read Seven and a Half Lessons about the Human Brain. And I, and I truly think, <laughs> yeah, I think, she, I think she's amazing. But I think she stands, uh, that's going to be more of a provocative question, question which I usually don't do, but, but I think it's going to be interesting. I, there are these kind of older models which postulated that there is a set of universal emotions and these are the emotions that people have and so on. And Lisa Feldman Barrett almost stands opposite to that she's she's got a more like i think constructivist approach to that uh in a lot of ways what what do you think about that do you think there are universal emotions really um i think you know i'm i'm not a neuroscientist or you know an expert on the brain so this is a layman's answer um, I, I do think that emotions are universal, but that doesn't mean that our expression of them is universal. So what I mean by that is, you know, I just said that emotion analytics from open-ended text is probably the best approach we have. The problem, of course, is that you can't just translate from every language into English to do that. Because every language has so many different variations in speech. Um, you know, someone once told me that there are more than a hundred words in the Inuit language to describe snow. Well, snow obviously isn't an emotion, but I'm just using that example. You know, in, in English, of course, you'd be lucky to get more than five words to describe snow. So to, to actually understand how people feel, you really need a native language emotion analytics tool. 
because I, in, in translating it into English, you know, you end up with two or three or four degrees of separation. So I, I think the underlying emotions are probably universal, but it, you, to understand them, you have to really understand them in the context of the individual culture and language in which it's expressed. Yeah, so it's not that simple. Yeah, I asked a kind of probably a too simplistic question in a lot of ways because yeah, it's it's more complicated than that. Especially when you go to you know everyone knows happy, you can recognize happy, but but then you also have uh, emotions which are not not that core, if you will, like uh, or it could be excited, they could be elevated, they could be inspired, and all that. And these are all emotions. Uh, but how are they different from happy? How does every culture express them, and so on? That that's that's a tricky bit indeed. Right. The the trick really is to get to the fine grained emotions. Because you're right, <clears throat> you could create these these at the at at the highest level. You could say, well, we've got you know the eight or ten or seven, whatever. You know, there's all different models as to how many core emotions there are. So. There's, there's happiness, there's love, there's anger, there's frustration. But if you ladder down from, <clears throat> from happy, there might be in English 50 different words that ladder up to happy. And in another language, there might be 30 or 130. Yeah, absolutely. The, Howard, uh, probably some of our listeners right now could be wondering, I, I, I don't know, you know, why are we talking about emotions? Why is it important to talk about emotions in the first place? Aren't you just kind of making a big fuss out of it? <laughs> well, you know, if, if you're in the customer experience business, emotions are key. I mean, every every work every project I've looked at where um, where the client has been open to looking at emotions, uh, the, the lift is huge. I mentioned before in uh, car repair and banking uh, how there was a 50% lift in the uh, loyalty metrics. Um, you know, when I did a study in cell phone repurchase behavior. And, you know, simply, very, very simply, how likely is it that people were going to buy the same brand of phone again? And the the actual repurchase behavior was fifty percent higher. Again, that fifty percent number when the uh, when the customer had what was was seen to be an emotional attachment to the to the phone. And you know, phones are a great example because in every study I've ever done, Samsung Droid outperforms Apple on functionality and features. And scores better on performance and battery and memory and and every single feature. Droid outperforms Apple, with one exception: overall engagement. Because the people who are Apple users just love their iPhones. They have this emotional attachment to the iPhone that drives repurchase. It drives brand permission for the entire Apple ecosystem, which has really nothing to do with the, I, I, I'm not belittling the quality of the product, but you know, you measure side by side what people say about iPhones and Samsung Droids, 
and Samsung droids perform better, as expressed by the users of the phone. But the attachment to the device is always skewed towards Apple because of that emotional bond. So if you want, if you're in the business, if you're in the business of of driving repurchase, renewals, um, recommendations, um, you know, br a brand uh, upselling and cross-selling, the emotional engagement is the actual keystone to that. Don't get me wrong; it doesn't mean your product can suck. I mean, I'm, <laughs> you know, I'm not saying don't care about the product. But you have such incredible commoditization across products that, quite frankly, what differentiates them often is the attachment to the brand, that emotional, that emotional bond. So if I, if I can some, probably try to summarize what we discussed so far, uh, emotions are super important because in your studies, it, the emotional attachment can yield up to 50% higher purchase rate, which is, I think, amazing really uh, return on investment so how do i do that i first measure uh, or at least try to measure emotions and we discussed a couple of ways in which you can do that so okay if i'm in the customer experience manager's shoes i can prove the impact of emotions i can try to measure them at least you know it's not perfect but i can get a proxy so what do i do after that is probably the, the second million dollar question how do i create this emotion these, these emotions in customers do i need to decide exactly what emotions do i want to create how, how does this go further well i mean obviously you want to instill emotions that are positive because you want people to do those things that drive value to the organization, right? So, you know, it's, it's important to avoid the negative emotions in some respects. You might say even more important than the positive ones insofar as <clears throat> negative emotions are stickier. I mean, we've all heard that people tell bad news more often. I mean, the reality is that negative information is processed more quickly, more thoroughly, acted on more thoroughly, and told, talked about more thoroughly in terms of third parties than positive information. So protecting against negative feelings is in some respects a defense that's, that is as important, if not more important, than generating those positive feelings. But you, you, know, you ask a great question, and, that, and that's why I think so many practitioners have shied away from emotions because they don't know what to do with it. They, they've shied away from it, I think, for two reasons. One, because they're afraid that it looks too soft and fuzzy and that their leadership is going to look at them like they're crazy when they say, what we need to do is make people feel better about the product instead of worrying about improving the product's performance by one iota. They're concerned that leadership is going to say, Okay, go find another job. The other thing they're worried about is it's easy to go to the lab and tell the people that the car needs to accelerate from zero to 60 in 4.8 seconds instead of five, five seconds. Like somehow that's a silver bullet that solves anything. It's, but it's easy to say that. It's a lot harder to go back to the lab and look at the folks with the white lab coats on and say, we need to make people feel better about our products and services because that's not their thing. 
It and it's a it is a it is the million dollar question or the second million dollar question as you put it, and there there's no silver bullet. Um, you know, I work with clients all the time, and we end up with um, a key driver factor that says customers need to feel more valued. Well, how do you act on that? Well. You, it's it's not immediately obvious because it doesn't mean it improve the rate of acceleration of the car, but you have people on the front line dealing with customers all the time. Ask your employees, crowdsource or employee source input on how do we engage more with customers, literally engage with them and get them involved. Ask customers how you would do that. You know, experiences are meaningful for customers only to the extent that they create some sort of memory and leave some sort of memorable impact. And an experience that leaves no memorable residue, that doesn't leave an imprint on you and your memory, basically just evaporates into the air. It's like it goes into the ether. You know, if, if you don't remember an experience, you can make a pretty good case that the experience didn't even matter. Right, because if, if you you forgot about it, and you're not going to act on it once you forgot about it, so you you really need to drill down into how to connect with people at a very human, visceral level, and intentionally try to instill memories. Um, you know, from a research point of view, you could always ask people what they remember. And you'd be surprised at how many of them remember nothing. And that tells you that you are perhaps doing a great job with your product, but doing a lousy job at instilling a memory in them that they're going to act on. Because, and I don't want to ramble on like I'm giving a speech here, so I'm sorry, but the, the reality is what we're trying to do is influence future customer behavior. Right? We're not trying to just create some abstract sense of the product is good and I'm happy. We're trying to influence subsequent customer behavior. That behavior we know is driven overwhelmingly by emotions. The key is to connect with those emotions. And, you know, there's... It, if you, if you in the U.S. there's a there's a store called Yankee Candle. As you'd expect, they smell they sell candles. They but they they, they actually uh, they they use aroma outside of the store because your olfactory senses, your sense of smell, is one of the strongest underappreciated senses that create. That, that link up with prior memories of what you used to do as a kid. I, I, I once went to buy a house and the, the realtor had the owner baking apples in the oven every time I went back to that house. And I realized why. I mean, at first I didn't. I just thought, hey, that smells really nice. And then I, after the third time, it struck me. 
they are trying to connect with that. Everybody remembers grandma baking apples in the oven. She was basically trying to reinforce a memory connection between this house, which had nothing to do with my grandparents, and, you know, growing up. Um, they, you know, there are lots of examples of that, of that type of thing. It's, it's a million and one little things that stick with you. Um, you know, I had a client once that they're in retail and a lot of what they sell is, is, um, printing and paper and office supplies. And I said to them, you know, every time it rains, make sure that you have extra umbrellas by the door and walk people to their car in the rain. Because as silly as it sounds, I will bet you that they remember being walked to the car in the rain so their package didn't get ruined more than what was in the package because they don't expect you to walk them to the car. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now that's super interesting and it got me thinking, you know, about because customer experience managers tend to be very analytical and for obvious reasons and that's all very good. And I think sometimes we kind of underestimate the importance of creativity in a lot of ways because I think these two ideas that you shared, that's just a matter of, you know, creativity and it's not like creativity in the sense of I'm going to paint Mona Lisa. It's like very, very practical creativity and very small actions that can be put into good use today. And then it's all about after that orchestrating this overall experience at the end of the day. So how do you combine all of these very interesting elements into into one bigger piece? So it's probably also coherent, you know, because we know that coherence helps us with with memories. But you mentioned memories, and I noticed that. In a lot of your articles, you talk about memories. So how, do, how, how did we get from emotions to memories? And why is, why is that important, this connection between the two? Well, the, the, the connection really is that an experience is, you know, it, it, an experience is, is, it, leaves an, it either leaves an imprint or it doesn't leave an imprint. And it leaves an imprint if it is um, if it is memorable, but it's the it's, it's the emotional connection that makes it memorable. In other words, absent an emotional connection, absent making you feel something, you're less likely to remember. There's a there's a great quote by Maya Angelou. The uh, I don't know if, if you're familiar with her. She's a very, very famous American poet laureate. Um, her famous book, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. Um, a brilliant woman. Uh, she, she wrote something to the effect, people won't necessarily remember what you've done for them, but they will remember how you made them feel. You know, it's that feeling that 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 sort of triggers, if you would, the memory, and and that's what their realtor was trying to do with the apples, right? Basically triggering the memory that I had as a kid, and 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 that's 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 the linkage there. Yeah, that has been one of my favorite quotes for a couple of years now, uh, because I started reading a lot about leadership. 
and helping you be a better leader and so on. And I think a lot about leadership oftentimes kind of boils down to exactly what my Angelou said. You know, it's it's not so much about what you say it's, or how you say it. It's about how you make people feel. And that's, and that's it, full stop. I, If you allow me kind of a, a diversion a little bit from our conversation, but I was attending a conference just two weeks ago uh, and I had a friend of mine actually presenting there. He's a photographer. He's, he's a guy who full of energy, like a, like a hurricane, really. And at some point, I was like, it doesn't really matter what he's saying. You know, I'm quite sure that people are actually not listening to what he's saying, but he acts in such a way that it kind of uh, invigorates you and it energizes you, it inspires you. And I think that if you ask people what did he say, they wouldn't be able to say. What, what did he spoke about? Uh, but I'm quite sure that they, they felt it and they actually enjoyed looking at, at him. And I, and I think you and our listeners right now have a lot of similar examples. Yeah, so it's so it was a memorable experience. Only that I remember the feeling, not not what he said. But uh, as you say, it's it's oftentimes it's all about that, especially if I'm a if I'm a customer. Oh, absolutely. It's if you know. Again, we we have hundreds or thousands of experiences daily, and ninety nine point nine percent of them are like water over the dam. You know, it's it's a, it's the sound of a tree falling in the woods when you don't even hear it. You know, you know it made a sound, but so what? You didn't hear it. You know, of all those experiences, the overwhelming majority. <clears throat> They they just they go into the ether. They evaporate into the air. They leave no impact. If they leave no impact, then you know they might as well not even have happened because it's not going to influence you going further. It's only when they make that connection with you emotionally that it sort of leaves an imprint on you, and that memory resides. And you know you it's you know memory is a strange thing. How it. It recedes deep, 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 and then all of a sudden something triggers it, and you know it makes that connection. And you know, I remember listening to Daniel Kahneman speak, the uh, author of Thinking Fast and Slow. You know, maybe twelve years ago or so, shortly after, maybe not that long ago, shortly after he won the Nobel Prize, and he was speaking to a bunch of marketers about. You know, behavioral economics, which is a very closely related subject. I mean, it's all about non non rational decision making. And and he and he closed his speech by imploring the audience of marketers not to be too manipulative. <laughs> Don't use your ability to influence decision making to overtly manipulate people into doing things that they really shouldn't or don't really uh, are not in their best interest because you could have, you could exploit their weak decision making skills, um, and you know it, it stuck with me. Um, you know, hopefully people use this, uh, uh, you know, in a way that's constructive and and not uh, and not destructive. That's a very good point. It is a superpower being able to do that, and as, as any superpower, you know, it can be used to do good or to do bad. So yeah, let's hope for an ethical use of that. Uh, Howard, uh, we spoke about also in the beginning of the conversation about how that a lot of companies kind of 
and in practitioners shy away from talking about emotions and putting them to putting them into their uh, analysis, if you will, and action planning. What do you think are the challenges to implementing such a kind of emotion, emotion first, if you will, approach? Well, I mean, the, the biggest challenge is the organizational hurdle. You know, the brand and advertising people would be laughing at this conversation, right? You know, the brand and advertising people would basically be saying, what took you guys so took long? you guys so long? Uh, yeah, you know, welcome. You know, welcome to the party. Yeah, we've been doing this forever. But, you know, the product and the product marketing people uh, and the line people and the line organization, they, you know, that's, they, don't, they don't think this way. You know, the biggest obstacle is recognizing, you know, what is it you're trying to do? You know, sometimes I'm amazed at how people don't see the nose in front of their face, right? You know, for me, CX is the science of, of, of trying to understand what it is that people experience when they interact with your, your product, you know, when they're shopping for buying and using your product or service. What is the, how do they feel about that experience? I don't mean feel in the emotional sense. What, are they, what is that experience that they have? Understand that experience so that you can modify the experience you deliver with the objective of influencing their behavior going forward. You know, you want to influence them to buy again, buy more, buy more expensive stuff, recommend to others, and so forth. All the classic things that you want. Well, if you accept that, and then you turn the page and you see the, the, the litany of research and proof that has been put in place that basically says people make emotional decisions. Emotions dominate the decision-making process. And then you, you add that together. You want to influence their behavior. Their behavior is overwhelmingly driven by emotions. It amazes me that people don't come to the obvious conclusions. Well, duh. We have to connect with them emotionally. You know, it, it, it's staring the business community in the face, and the business community is looking in the other direction. I, you know, I realize it's not easy because, uh, you know, emotions are inherently abstract. You know, it's sort of like, you know, it, Somewhere between 89 and 91% of an iceberg is submerged. So you could, you could try to avoid the iceberg by dealing only with the ice you see. <laughs> but that's a pretty fool's errand way of navigating around the iceberg since 90% of it is submerged. If you think of emotions the same way, 90% of our decision making is emotional. So you could, you could play to the other 10% that's above the surface where people tell you that, you know, I want the, uh, the, the, the car to accelerate in five seconds instead of 5.2. You could, you, could, you could address those stated needs, but that's the 10% that's above the surface. The other 90%, you've got to dig deep. You've got to go underneath. You've got to do the soft stuff, the stuff that a lot of people feel reluctant to focus on because, like I said, that's not inherent in the product itself. But that's where the action is. That's where the real lift is. 
that's where the real differentiation is. And that's where the money is in terms of driving value from the, from customers. Howard, I, I somehow felt that that's kind of a, an amazing ending to our conversation. Uh, so I was going to ask you, is there anything else you you would like us to, to chat about? Anything that I didn't give you the opportunity to? I, I feel like I've been ranting on a soapbox standing in Hyde Park, talking to whomever might listen as they walk by. Evo, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I know we've ran long. I appreciate your patience with me as I've rambled hither and yon, and I hope you found it as interesting as I have. It was amazing, Howard, and I would have, um, I would love to maybe do a second episode uh, at some point because I feel there is a lot, a lot we can we can talk about, and I hope that uh, we'll get a lot of a lot of feedback and a lot of questions from our listeners that we can address at some point. Thank you once again. My pleasure. You take care now. Thank you. If you liked this episode, hit follow and visit gemseek.com to learn more. Let's make an impact on the world of CX together. Thank you for listening.